This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. He had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today is a very special episode, and it's mostly special because uh, Sky is face to face with me uh-huh. right now in the I'm trenches. Back. I'm back. It feels so good to be back. Woo. It's cold outside, not like in <laughs> Texas. I like. I've been wandering the grounds, and I just I miss it here. So I'm so happy to be back. And you're gonna stay here forever? Forever. I wish. Oh. I, have to, I have to go back, back uh, to in school. a month, but yeah. Obviously, I'll keep doing this, and I'll keep coming back. You guys Sweet. can't get rid of me anymore. Yes. <laughs> you tried for a little bit, and I came back, and I will never leave again. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, just in case, I guess, uh, welcome to Behind Gray Walls. I didn't even <laughs> introduce the podcast. I'm just so excited Sky's here. This is awesome. Uh, my name is Anthony, and of course, we're chatting with Sky. Who's going to start the show off today with I a am, great story? I am going to start the show off today. So... I am doing uh, number 7121, Barbara Irene Bryson. Um, She is in for grand larceny. She is from Texas, actually. So it fits. Yeah. Uh, Now Idaho and Texas, they just intermingle with one another in my (laughs) life forever. (laughs) And the podcast is no exception. Yes. Um, So sources for my research, I have, of course, her inmate file, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com. Um, I pulled some information from, I believe it was uh, when I was looking at the town that she was from, u-s-history.com, mm. and then um, Wikipedia for just little tidbits here and there. Barbara Irene Bryson was born on April 29th, 1926, in Laferia, Texas, to Almond and Margie Bryson. Now, Laferia, it's about half an hour from the U.S.-Mexico border in the sort of the southern tip of Texas that has mm. that little, like, tail thing sort Mm -hmm. of right in there um and it's actually in the gulf of mexico sort of in that because i think there's sort of that little strip of land and she had an older brother who also was named almon a-l-l-m-o-n and he was two years older and then she had a younger sister billy who was four years younger um so she had, quote, good childhood opportunities. That's mm-hmm. from her inmate file. She attended Harlingen High School until she was 17 years old. And she said she had to drop out because she couldn't afford to continue. And so she dropped out of high school and she started working. I think that her father and her mother divorced. And so her mother was on her own, um, which is why sort of they couldn't afford mm-hmm. for her to stay in school. And so in 1943, she moved to Reno, Nevada with her mother and According to one file in her inmate file, she had graduated from high school in Reno, but she said she never did. Um, But she supposedly graduated high school in Reno and then began working for the railroad. 
She worked for the railroad for a few months and then took a job at a local telephone company. So three years later, in 1946, she is still working for the telephone company, and she meets a man named Blake Goss, and they fall in love. Aww. Typical love story. So in November 1946, Blake persuades Barbara to go to Idaho Falls uh, with him. Idaho Falls, Idaho, obviously. And they get a job at the local nightclub. And um, so in late 1946, Blake and Barbara are working at a nightclub with just a few miles outside of Idaho Falls. They are posing as a married couple, but they are not married. Blake tends the bar, and Barbara is a cook, and she also serves the food. They're good employees, but... They want a little bit more money than they're currently making. Right. Barbara also claims that a doctor had told her to quit working. Um, usually that has to do with pregnancy mm. is usually why. And so if she quits working, then they're out half a, half a salary and mm-hmm. they are going to need some more money. So you just keep this in mind. She also said that she wanted to go away. So that's also why they needed money. So she might be huh. pregnant. It just says that the doctor told her to quit working. That's just been my assumption, is that she says she was pregnant. Like, that is, that's why he told her to quit working. Yeah. And then she said that she wanted to go away. And so when you're out half a salary and you want to get out of town, you need, you need some quick cash. Yeah. And so Blake noticed that their employer, who lived outside of the bar in a trailer, he kept a lot of money in that trailer. In fact, he kept uh, about... in small bills in his trailer. And so, on December 2nd, 1946, Blake breaks into the trailer and steals about $10,000. Both Blake and Barbara say it was about $10,000. The authorities claim it was all $12,000, but most newspaper articles also claim it was only about $10,000. Regardless, but that's no chump change. Like yeah, I'd, a, I'd, I'd take ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I'd, you could go away with that. I could, I could get out of town yeah. for for a little Jeez. bit. And so, um, do you want to take a guess how much ten thousand dollars in nineteen forty six is in today's money? You know, I'm terrible at this. We'll say uh, thirty nine thousand. It's a bit more. You want to try one more time? Uh, $100,000. It is $131,000 in what? 2019. Oh, my god! So, again, this is no no chump change. Wow. I still would take $10,000 in 2019 money, god. but I would especially take $10,000 in 1946 <sighs> money. So, they've got essentially $131,000 yeah. at their disposal. So, they catch a taxi from Idaho Falls to Pocatello, which that's a that's a decent taxi ride yeah but they got the money to pay for it so why not (laughs) why didn't they just buy a car (laughs) um probably because they don't want to be traced would be my guess probably yeah so they catch a taxi from idaho falls to pocatello they take a train from pocatello to cheyenne wyoming then they take a plane from cheyenne to chicago and then in chicago they buy a 1941 cadillac um and then you're gonna say they're gonna take a boat (laughs) right (laughs) planes trains and automobiles and boats everything in between um so they buy a 1941 cadillac in chicago and Mm. then they drive to florida spend a couple days in florida why not it's nice it's warm because this is december it's Mm -hmm. um so before it is warm much warmer than it is out here and then 10 days later they drive back into texas so now they are in kingsville texas which is south of san antonio Mm -hmm. in in the southern part of texas so blake starts acting kind of weird he starts to get a little bit temperamental maybe a little bit violent barbara actually never says that he gets violent she just says he starts acting kind of weird and Uh. she decides maybe 
I shouldn't be hanging out with him. The authorities are the ones who claim that he gets really violent. And so Barbara, supposedly afraid for her life, but also just like, my fake husband is acting really weird and scary. Yeah. And we've done, like, she kind of recognizes that they they have done something wrong. She calls the authorities in Idaho and turns them in. Oh. Once they bring the couple back, the authorities learn that in their 30-day spending spree, because this is in early part of 47. Mm-hmm. So it's been about 30 days. In their 30-day spending spree, they bought two cars, a trailer, jewelry, clothing, and when they got back to the prison, they had less than $200 left. Oh my god. Of that 10,000 or in today's money about 2,000. Wow. So they essentially spent $129,000 in 30 days. That is that's a spending spree. That is a spree. Yeah, yeah. Was it worth it? Uh. Uh, it seems perhaps not. <laughs> perhaps never. Not. It's never worth it. Um, one article said that all they had left was ninety two dollars, <sighs> and then Blake actually claimed that the two hundred dollars that they had left wasn't even part of the money that they stole. <laughs> so that actually makes it worse for oh, him. Oh, I stole that two hundred <laughs> yeah. from this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know how true that is, but regardless, um, they spent a lot. <laughs> of money in 30 days wow and so uh, deputy warden paris o'neill says that with as much money as they spent in the amount of time they spent it they would have spent more than fifteen hundred dollars per week or seventeen thousand dollars i don't even know what i would buy with seventeen thousand dollars in a week like i no purchase i have to make is ever that big i have never had that much money i don't i don't even know what that even means i know Wow. That's a, that's a lot of money. So they're they're just they just had a good time. Um so um when they were arrested and brought back to Idaho Falls from Kingsville, Texas, they actually used the names Barbara and Blake um Mulcahy. So they were kind of running under aliases, okay. which is why I think unless Barbara had turned them in, they never would have been found. Yeah. Especially because they're, as far as I could tell, they never actually got married. They were only ever just posing really? as a married couple. Jeez. So they are now in Idaho Falls, Idaho. So here's a little bit of Idaho Falls history. Mm. Um, so it's in eastern Idaho. It's north of Pocatello. It's not too far from the Wyoming border, and it's built right along the Snake River. Just as with most of the cities of Idaho, it was occupied by Native Americans. In this case, it was the Shoshone Bannock um, before white settlers. And then in 1864, this is the year of the first significant white development. Mm -hmm. A man named Harry Ricketts built and operated a ferry across the Snake River. Harry Ricketts. Harry Harry Ricketts. (laughs) Hopefully he didn't have Ricketts. That would be lame. So the ferry is very helpful for westward migration on the Montana Trail. So Mm -hmm. um, lots of people passing through. And soon after, a freighter named Matt Taylor built a toll bridge seven miles downstream from the ferry crossing. And so with this crossing and this bridge, the area starts to build up. And it is first known as Taylor's Crossing, named after Matt Taylor. By 1866, the area is known as Eagle Rock, uh, named after a nearby basalt island where 20 eagles had nested. Wow. So it used to be called Eagle Rock. Interesting. Which is kind of fun. Then in the late 1870s, the Utah and Northern Railway actually built a railroad up through Eagle Rock, and that railway crossed the Snake River. Mm-hmm. And once the railway is in, then settlers begin homesteading the area, um, and most were actually from Utah with their families. Yeah. And actually, Idaho Falls still has a fairly large LDS population, mm-hmm. probably stemming from this early migration. 
1887, the Oregon Short Line builds through Eagle Rock, and there's actually a large railroad worker strike, and that causes most of the railroad yards to actually move south to Pocatello because they don't want to have to deal with this big strike Mm -hmm. in Idaho Falls. That caused, obviously, an immediate drop in population and actually almost killed the town, um, just emptied it. So in 1891... Um, what's basically left of the people realize that they need to get more people here or else this place is going to die. So in 1891, there is an attempt to attract farmers. Um, And so marketers convinced town leaders to change the name of the town to Idaho Falls. It referenced the rapids below Taylor's Bridge. And Mm. um, it also sort of, it seems picturesque. You know, Idaho Falls seems like it would be really lovely. Also, I think Idaho Falls intimates that there's the river nearby so Mm. if you need to irrigate then you can do that really easily irrigators begin diverting water into the area which then caused agriculture to boom and it saved the town so that this this attempt by the leaders of the town it works which is which is good so then um, we are going to skip about 50 years. In 1949, a new thing called the National Reactor Testing Site Ooh. is founded in Idaho Falls by the Atomic Energy Commission. Yeah. Um, and it is used to test various kinds of nuclear reacting. In fact, 52 nuclear reactors were built out on the site. So... Uh, yeah. On July 17th, 1955, this is kind of cool, um, the testing site flipped a switch and the nearby town of Arco became the first city powered by nuclear energy. Um, and this information I got actually from that U-S-History, mm-hmm. because it was actually, this was more about sort of the nuclear testing site than right. Idaho Falls itself. But, is it still active to you? Or are you um, getting to that? It is, yes. So after Arco became the first city powered by nuclear energy, in 1961, there was the only fatal nuclear reactor incident. Um, That was January 3rd, and three men were killed after a nuclear malfunction. Um, And this article on that U-S.History actually gets into the details of, like, what reactor thing went wrong and it was very sciencey and i wasn't i couldn't understand it <laughs> right. but basically there was yeah. a piece that like flew straight into a guy and that killed him immediately <sighs> and a couple other guys like one guy i think got like it says this might be a little bit graphic so if you don't want to hear it maybe skip ahead a couple little 30 seconds but i think it like shot him up into the roof and like held him there it was <gasps> it was pretty gnarly wow. so yeah this yeah. was not like not like oh they died because of uh exposure it was like violent yeah so um interesting piece of idaho history for sure that we are the ones that had a failure like this yeah um so that was january 3rd 1961 but that was the only one Mm -hmm. so they sort of worked out the kinks or at least haven't (laughs) had any haven't had anything go wrong since then knock on wood (laughs) (laughs) we've got lots of wood around here (laughs) so now the site is known as the idaho national laboratory and it is operated by the u.s department of energy Mm -hmm. so it is still active Again, I'm not a scientist, and so I don't know how much is still nuclear. If they're doing other testing out there, I'm not sure. Probably the the residents of Idaho Falls would know more about that. Yeah. So if you guys are interested, want to send us a, a an email letting us know sort of what goes on out there, mm-hmm. if you're even allowed to Let talk about it, yeah. <laughs> let us know. <laughs> um, so the population in 2010 of Idaho Falls was 56,813. And then the 2018 estimate is about 61,535. Yeah. So it's growing. 5,000, um, yeah. Yeah, it's not a, uh, not a small town, yeah. really, by any means. So that is Idaho Falls. So back to Barbara. So she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary after her arrest and charged with grand larceny on February 24th, 1947, on a 1-14 to year sentence. So her statistics, she pled guilty when she came in 
1 to 14 years. She uh, was from Bonneville County, mm-hmm. received February 24th, 1947. She was 20 years old, born in Texas. Her occupation was an office worker, which is interesting because mm-hmm. she actually was a waitress, but, mm-hmm. you know, probably seems, probably is more respectable yeah. to be an office worker. And when she worked in the railroad and yeah, like that's the, true. was it the power it was the, or telephone? It was the telephone. Telephone company. So maybe she was just referencing yeah. like... When Which I was, uh, I would, I think, I, I mean, yeah. I waitress myself, so it's not a blow. But I think if she's trying to go for, you know, respectability, yeah. that she's going to go Parole for that office later worker. Yeah, looking at, yeah, um, <laughs> work history. But again, there's nothing wrong with being a waitress. We there need them. Not, we were yeah. talking actually at lunch today that mm-hmm. food service is not an easy job, and yes. it deserves far more respect than it gets. Yeah. yeah. So she was uh, five feet seven inches tall, about 113 pounds. So she's tall and thin, mm-hmm. uh, medium complexion brown hair and brown eyes and unfortunately like we don't have the women don't often have bertillions which is mm-hmm. interesting so you always have these like cool bertillion facts of like all their scars and right. we just don't have that very often they're for occasional the and yeah. sometimes it's just the front and there's mm-hmm. nothing on the back and yeah because like, yeah, sometimes if the women didn't have anything on their back they just leave the back out yeah. um so yeah i mean we'll get in i think i've done like daisy mm-hmm. excuse me had some and uh, so tattoos, there's a few yeah. but Barbara, unfortunately, all we have are those statistics. So there were three other women in the women's ward with her. Mm. Dorothy Kendrick, who was in for robbery. Sarah Bradley, who was in for forgery. And Ethelyn Peterson, who was in for second degree murder. And if we get into her story one of these days, it's a rough one. Mm. It's it's horrible. I said three. There's actually four because I think I didn't count Ethelyn Peterson for some reason. But there was also, so there were four other women in with her. Another one, her name was Dorothy Randolph, and she was also oh. in for grand larceny. Is she from Texas? She is, I think, if I remember correctly. She She's is got like Texas. the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the funny <laughs> face. a little smiley, and like, I think her Cocked hair is in sort little. of the, the weird, like, curls yeah. on the top of her head. Yeah. Some Definitely. of the hairdos this season have been good. <laughs> Cora Stanfield. We're, we're still <laughs> debating if that's Cora's hair or yeah. if that's a hat. I still stand by, I think it's her hair. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my cousin Kyle. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, um, so on her entry, uh, Barbara admits that she is three months pregnant. Wow, yeah. So when she wanted to leave town and her doctor told her to take a rest, it is because she was actually pregnant. That makes sense. So she says that she knew that Blake was married, actually, mm. when she was with him, and that's why they didn't get married. Blake was married to a woman in California while they were together, but she mm. says that she thought that his wife had already obtained or was in the process of obtaining a divorce oh. while Barbara and Blake were together. So she was basically just sort of biding her time, waiting right. for that divorce to go through, and then it seems that she was planning to marry Blake. Mm-hmm. And uh, Warden Clapp says that he was assured that Blake's wife had indeed filed for divorce, but it was not finalized yet. So Barbara's in the prison, August 1947. So about six months after she is there, um, she is moved to St. Alphonsus Hospital in Boise to give birth. She gives birth to a son named Michael, and he's born on August 23rd, 1947. He was seven pounds, born at 8 p.m. on August 23rd. And a handwritten note from H.P. Fales, who was part of the Board of Corrections, wrote, (laughs) quote, Barbara and baby doing fine. So everything went well there. Now, this is actually really kind of sad. I found this letter, and I had never read it that closely before, like um, when I wrote her mm-hmm. biography. So in April, when she, um, a couple months after she comes in, and it's uh, sort of, I don't know if it's broadcast that she's pregnant or or sort of what 
because I think sometimes in in those statesman articles they would say like she's pregnant, mm-hmm. like this person came in and she's expecting a baby or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, so back in April, there's a couple who actually writes the warden after reading a newspaper article that stated that Barbara was going to have a baby, and hopefully I can read this because the printer. Um, is weird. So, uh, and they're also in cursive and sometimes it's sort of hard to read. So bear with me. So this is what the letter says. It says, Dear Mr. Clapp, we are writing in regard to the enclosed article which appeared in the Emmett Index. We're wondering if Miss Bryson is planning to adopt her baby out. We are a childless couple and are financially able to care for a child and are very anxious to get one. We are uncertain how to go about this and would appreciate your help. If you can give us any hopes of the baby, we could come to Boise and talk to you. Enclosed is a stamped envelope for your reply. Thank you. Mr. and Mrs. George Garrett. And they're from Emmett. Wow. So the couple are likely uh, George and Flora Garrett, who married in 1945. And they were pretty prominent. I think both were from prominent families because their marriage announcements were sort of all over the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, They were both born and raised in Weezer, Idaho, and they may have briefly lived in Emmett. This is why I think it's them, because there yeah. there was another George Garrett. So, like I said, they were well-known enough that their marriage was announced in the paper, and I don't think, like, just a, any sort of average couple would have written right. the warden yeah. to be like, hey, we're respectable citizens, we want this baby. Like, yeah. I think there had to have been, they had to have been well-known enough mm-hmm. um, to sort of write the letter and say, like, we are a childless couple, we'd really like one. Would, you know, your inmate basically consider giving That's giving her baby to us? Yes. Want, does that happen now, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think that's allowed anymore, <laughs> right. honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, it's it's really kind of sad. It's it's sad for both, you mm-hmm. know, like the, that Barbara is is in the situation that she's pregnant in prison and mm-hmm. she her her the baby's father is also in with her. Right. And so she may not have anything to do with the baby but then like does she keep it because it is hers does she give it to another family to try to raise um because she may not be able to do it Mm -hmm. on her own and so the warden writes back um the garrets and he says that he's not sure what barbara wanted to do with the baby yet but if she decided to adopt it out that he would let them know but barbara did not adopt her baby out because two days after he's born on august 25th the uh, idaho board of corrections gives her a conditional parole and that condition is that she returns to Reno to live with her mother and her baby for an indeterminate parole period. Aww. There's probably a lot sort of that has to do with her being released yeah. early. I think one is that she's the one who turned them in. I think another is that she probably was, she seemed pretty repentant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think she was readily admitting that, yes, we did this and we stole yeah. this money and we went on the spree. But, you know, I think she she seems quite sorry and, and mm-hmm. willing to sort of make it up. And she probably was really well behaved in prison as well. And then when you have a baby, especially sort of, I would say, up until about the 1960s, the prison tends to be pretty repentant Mm -hmm. for those who are are pregnant and give birth and want to keep the babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I think that there's sort of a lot of reasons why, despite this like one to 14 year sentence, she is granted this conditional parole six months after she entered the prison. And so that parole is effective September 1st, 1947. And so she served six months and eight days of her total sentence. She went to Reno, Mm -hmm. did what she was supposed to do, and she was granted final discharge on October 1st, 1948. Wow. All right. Um, Yeah. So we don't really hear anything of Barbara until 1960, so about 12 years later. And there is a passenger list which shows her sailing to the UK, leaving from New York and landing in Southampton, England. 
so she lists her marital status as single which means she never married or she was i mean actually i think if she was divorced she would write divorced Mm -hmm. and we don't know what happened to michael i would assume that she raised him by the time she's in england he would have been about 13 12 or 13. so on this register that i found it has there's a column that says like reason for visiting and it just says v I tried to like look up what that would have meant, uh-huh. but there's not really any keys as to like these sort of old ship Sh- registers anymore. Or so yeah. I would assume it's like visitor or vacation. Vacation, yeah. Um, and she and so and then it asked, how long do you anticipate being in the UK? And she anticipated taking about a three month vacation Uh-oh. in the UK. To which I say, good for her. Yeah. Like good, good for you, girl. <laughs> do it. <laughs> I wish I could take a three month vacation to to the UK. And then we also there is a file. The last file that I found in Barbara's uh, file is in 1963 the real estate division of the nevada state department of commerce sent a letter to the warden asking for details of barbara's incarceration because barbara had applied for a real estate license in nevada Hmm. and they wrote back giving the real estate division all of her details i don't know if she got the job but i hope she did yeah and i hope that she 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 seems to have lived out you know the rest of her life as an upstanding citizen Mm -hmm. and again i say good for her so that is all I have on on Barbara Irene Bryson number seven one two one. It was just a tiny slap on the wrist. Yep. And had she not been pregnant, do you think she would have spent a at least a year in here? I I would bet so. Yeah. Um, but I think sort of based. I think a lot. Uh, there's a lot of consideration made for mm-hmm. people for inmates who sort of turn themselves in. Right. And so I think that that would have been definitely taken into consideration. Definitely. And so I think she would have served. A year and a half at most, but yeah. I would bet she would have gotten out at her minimum mm-hmm. if she had wow. not been pregnant. Yeah. Wow. All right. Interesting ladies. Nice. Usual. Absolutely. Wow. That is a lot. Of, I'm still blown away. Is that the most money stolen that we've come across or is that um, been more? I think, well, so I guess inflation, there's, a, there's, so. Some, there's some embezzlement that's an insane amount of money as oh, well. Oh, Hopper. Hopper, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, that's a good she's, one. <laughs> yeah, she's stealing a, oh. a lot of money. <laughs> 12000 she would laugh at $12,000. Like, she'd be like, that's it. That's all I'm getting. It's Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have to get into Angela Hopper because she's, she's stealing money left and right. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Great Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. Well, should I hop on mine? Let's do... <laughs> Speaking okay. of hop, hopping, hopper. <laughs> nice transition. Thanks. Excellent. All right, so I kind of have a long one, so I apologize. But this guy is fascinating. His name is Bernard Francis O'Neill, number 2064. His lifelong nickname was Barney. So I'm just going to call him Barney, but remember his name is Bernard O'Neill. My sources, of course, is Inmate File, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Idaho Statesman Files, uh, the Bowery Boys podcast on New York City History Online, their article, A Very Special New York Newsies Christmas. Ooh. Where is this going? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, Barney O'Neill was born in Valley Stream, Long Island, New York, the fifth child of Irish immigrants John and Catherine O'Neill, and his birthday and age are disputed because all of his all the files I could come across. One said 1860, one says 1863, and one says 1865. Mm. We'll see why in just a moment here. He states he was born in 1863 in his inmate file, but the 1870 census said that he was four years old, Mm. so that would have been 1866 Mm -hmm. when he was born, or 1865. This census also listed his father, who was a cooper. You know what a cooper is? Uh, I don't. It's somebody who makes and repairs wooden vessels like buckets and barrels and casks and things hmm, like that okay. yeah yeah I never so he's an before. irish Im- immigrant raising his you know pretty large irish catholic family and uh his uh older brothers were james who listed his occupation at the age of 17 as a painter and felix and his older sisters margareth and Catherine. and at the age of seven barney's mother dies three years later his father dies oh. he and his five siblings are orphaned Barney is 10 years old. He's without parents. Guardianship is granted to this saloon keeper named Clancy. And Barney spent most of his time on the streets uh, working as a newspaper boy, as a newsie. Mm. And they earned typically about 30 cents a day selling newspapers. Yeah. And they'd basically start the day. They would buy a big stack of newspapers. You couldn't refund them. Mm-hmm. So you had the entire day to sell them. So right. that you can have enough money to pay for your lodging and food and whatever. Some of the headlines, I can imagine him yelling in 1876. (laughs) Socially, John Dillaber murdered at Westminster. Get your news. (laughs) British steamer Dante sunk. 23 drowned. Read it here. I don't have a good New York accent. I don't know. Well, but you sound, it's a perfect newsy voice. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I get told that quite often. Yeah, I I would imagine this is your yelling things in the yard. Yeah, that's a really good newsy voice. (laughs) Read all about Professor Bell's new telephone. Get your paper. Get your papers. (laughs) One penny. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so he lives in this newsboy lodging house in New York. And with the help of this group, the New York Children's Aid Society, they create this program where basically they find families in the West who are looking for help for young helping hands. And so he's like, I, I need to do this. The whole di- idea was this I- Western expansion, the idea of go West, grow up with the country, mm-hmm. like develop with it. And so Barney goes to this, his guardian, the saloon keeper, and asks him to sign this form so he can go West. And the, and the saloon keeper's like, no, I'm not. You're not going anywhere, kid. And so he goes around the block, and he finds this woman that's always really nice to him Mm -hmm. and buys his papers and was like, will you sign your name on this? And she does. No way. And so he hops on the train. He said that his brothers, his siblings were all chasing after him, and he hopped on the train and and headed west. And while he was on the train, his job was uh, guarding the grub basket. (laughs) And, you know, they were just stopping in cities along the route and dropping kids off to families and he ended up stopping in sibley iowa to this very motherly woman who took him in and uh, he actually worked at her brother's ranch Mm -hmm. and he learned bronco busting and cow punching nice um, which (laughs) i don't know what those are but they sound amazing (laughs) i I am from idaho i had to look them up yeah so (laughs) bronco busting that's when you break a bronco to saddle for horseback riding and then cow punching is when you punch cows and self-explanatory no it's not (laughs) it's when you herd and wrangle and brand cows there's typically no punching involved um 
Anyway, after some time. But the image of a young boy <laughs> punching a cow is very like funny. 11 year old orphan. Just <laughs> what do you do? Cows. <laughs> right. So uh, he would say later in his life about this time, he said, uh, it doesn't make any difference whether a boy is a ragged newsboy or a high school graduate with money. He will succeed if he is honest and wants to. That spirit of taking a good hard drubbing now and then and not whining develops manhood. Oh, what, the, a, what an right. American dream. Right? That's it. The boy who can smile at hard luck is built of the material that succeeds. More rich men are holding out their hands in the darkness to give a fellow a lift than ever before. And the need of hustling boys with willing hands and hearts is very great. You're going to see this guy just elevate from this little 10-year-old orphan. Oh, it, it's crazy. <laughs> I love this story. This is one of my, one of my new favorites. So after he learns this for several years, he actually starts buying little piglets and raising them and then selling them. Mm. And so he makes enough money to start attending evening school. And then during the winter, he would go to school and he started to get an education. And at the age of 17, he actually gets a job as the deputy treasurer of the Osceola County in Iowa. And after oh. that, right. How, sorry, how old is he? 17. And he becomes the deputy <laughs> treasurer. So like, he is wow. a hard freaking kid. Yeah, he is. From there, he moves to Nebraska, and he becomes the assistant cashier in this Nebraskan bank, and he starts investing in all these different farms. He starts to learn how to invest, mm -hmm. and he, he invests in, like, several different farms at a time so that they do some profit-sharing business, mm -hmm. and he starts building his own bank account. And wow. in 1888, he meets a woman named Ada Winters. She's 23. He's 25 years old. Okay. I found an article from the Omaha Daily Bee describing a concert held in assembly grounds in Long Pine with Ada Winter as being one of the most prominent uh, among the singers and a graduate of a musical college oh. in Chicago. Cool. And the Bee noted that their wedding was crowded with invited guests and the event proved the grandest one of the season. So he's like marrying up into yeah. this rich socially family. The bride, Ada, was handsomely dressed in India silk with tulle trimmings and wore an elaborate bouquet of natural roses. Uh, the reception occurred at the residence of the bride's father, Mr. T. Winter. The groom is the cashier of the Long Pine Exchange Bank and is an excellent young man. The bride stands high socially, and at present, her father is a candidate for the legislator. Wow. So he is... He is I am afraid of what is happening, how he ends up here, because he's in a good <laughs> spot right now. <laughs> it gets better. So they have a son named Arthur two years later, and uh, the next place I could find him was in 1898, living up in Wallace and Coeur d'Alene, North Idaho. Mm -hmm. The newspaper article just says that he was with a friend on a fishing and camping expedition in Coeur d'Alene. You know, we've discussed, like, the mass influx of mining into North Idaho in the 1880s and the construction of railroads and how that kind of led to all these cities being developed mm -hmm. up there. And then the timber industry blows up. And right. then there are mining disasters in the 1890s, and which lead to mining unions and then strikes and all these things that we're going to hit on huge with Harry Orchard. Right. Eventually. Probably not this <laughs> season. I'm sorry, guys. It's so much work. It's a lot of work. It appears that... He just got into the mining industry and started to invest into all these different mines. Uh -huh. And he actually led, it led to the construction of this railroad up in North Idaho that was about 36 miles long and went from mine to mine. Okay. And so he's, mm. he started to figure out all the utilities necessary to bring in the wealth. Okay. And then mm -hmm. uh, he starts to invest in the Wallace State 
Bank of Commerce. And uh, in 1902, he becomes the senator of Shoshone County in the Idaho legislature. So he's starting to develop his wealth. He's investing in all these banks. Now he's, he's a full-time banker. He's and so like, his wife and son are with him, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His first few bills that he introduces as an Idaho legislator are for the taxation of mining properties based on their net production and uh, granting permission to physicians and surgeons to give testimony in civil actions where damages are sought for personal injury. Uh, in 1903, as the director of the Idaho River Improvement Company in Wallace, he's put in charge of constructing all these sawmills throughout the timberlands of North Idaho. And the company, with all these wealthy investors, reported being worth a million dollars. It was like 1903. Yeah. And he wanted to open the reserve lands of the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation for timber companies. This ultimately would, would fail during his time. But uh, 1904, he's actually sent to the old Fort Sherman Military Reserve in Coeur d'Alene to divide up the tracks and say what they are worth. And he set the value of several acres based on their desirability for farming, residency, manufacturing, and other business, hmm. and, and even for summer cottages. Just for oh. me. Yeah, which I thought okay. was kind of interesting. The land is it's now the site of the North Idaho College, which established in 1933 during the Great Depression as Coeur d'Alene. And it was originally called the Coeur d'Alene Junior College. Mm. Uh, during the summer of 1904, he selected as the Moscow Republican Convention to serve as a central committee member for Shoshone County. Okay, I just don't understand how this is going to nosedive right? so hard because I... he is upstanding of, of upstanding citizens. Yes, yeah. So he uses political prowess and growing wealth to invest in several banks. He invested $30,000 to establish the State Bank of Montpelier in 1904. And Montpelier is in the very southeast corner of Idaho. So mm -hmm. he's oh, north wow. Idaho. This investor sees a need oh, yeah, in southeast Idaho to open up a bank. And that's what he does. He establishes this like modern two-story bank. And that helped establish the area as, as the railroad business started to grow in there as well. Governor Gooding at the time called for the legislator to organize a department to look after the standing state banks and combine it with the office of the state insurance commissioner. And so Barney and these other other bankers, they actually organized the Idaho's Bankers Association in 1905, and he becomes the president of that. Hmm. A couple of the men he worked with included A.B. Moss, who was an extremely influential man who literally founded Payette, Idaho, and owed his wealth to the success of a mercantile company he began there, and the brother of Governor Frank Stunenberg named Albert Stunenberg, who established mm -hmm. the Commercial Bank of Caldwell and ran a successful newspaper. Hmm. So he's just... He's, he's hobnobbing with the highest. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. what happens. Uh, he drafts up the first laws for Governor Gooding. And he said the bill would create every safeguard for investors and required every asset in the bank must own property in a proportion of the population of the lo their locations. Such property must be in money, commercial paper, bank furniture and fixtures, buildings, unencumbered lots on which they stand. He also gave established banks one year to conform to these provisions and some of the uh, other important laws that he wanted to put on the books. Books must be kept showing the number of shares held by each stockholder, and in all suits, such books shall be deemed prima facie evidence. Each stockholder is held liable up to the par value of his stock. It is made felony for any bank officer to accept deposits knowing the bank is insolvent. That 
that's important. No <laughs> bank official is permitted to loan to himself any of the bank's funds without the approval of a majority of the directors, and the transaction must be made of record. Directors are made liable of any collusion in the connection to the detriment of the bank. And it set up rules that the governor would appoint the making commissioner, and this commissioner would be able to analyze the books of any state bank at any time without a moment's notice. Barney creates these rules for this association, and he hoped that he himself or one of his friends would be elected by Governor Gooding to run this. Right. But Governor Gooding Uh-oh. sees that that might become a business issue, and okay. so he elects somebody else to this position, oh much to Barney and the rest of the association's uh, dismay. Yeah. And so... <laughs> This kind of actually sets a fire under Barney to strive for higher positions oh, within no. the state. I don't so, like this. <laughs> over the next five years, <laughs> he would invest and continue growing businesses and wealth and his name across the state as this Republican, you know, leader, as this leading banker, as this leading investor in North Idaho. And 1910, he decides to run for governor of Idaho on the Republican ticket. He sent his photo to newspapers across the state and began a massive expanse to become the Republican nominee against the standing Republican governor, James Brady, who had taken over. As he's sending his, not his mugshot, his, his, his portrait <laughs> his, to yeah. all these, uh, these newspapers, several of them have funny reactions and responses to it. One of them, this is my favorite, it says, if tooting one's own horn will elect a man governor of Idaho, Barney O'Neill will easily win. And his platform pretty much resonates today. He says, Uh-oh. I firmly believe in conducting the affairs of the state in a business-like manner and free from political manipulation. I believe that appointed offices should be filled by the men best qualified to do the work. And if I am elected, I shall conduct the affairs under my charge on the principle which make for success in business economy and efficiency under the law. His motto is whatever is right. Whatever is right. Okay, that's a terrible motto. <laughs> because whatever is right, like, he needs to be clear about, like, whatever is right for the state, whatever is right for you. Yes. Who, who are we talking about? You sound just like the newspapers, both of them. Okay, good. For good. and against good. him. But, you know, a lot of newspapers were like, oh, yeah, Brady's, you know, he's going to be knocked off. They're, the governor is Republican. Barney mm-hmm. O'Neill is Republican. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to bounce the governor off right. the ticket so that he can do it. And so most newspapers, like, they say that Barney is going to be the next governor. Mm. Like, they're Mm-mm. positive. He visits, uh, in July of 1910, he visits the Hawaii Hotel here in Boise, where a thousand guests welcome him and shake his hand. The Boise High School band shows up. They perform several songs in the balcony of the hotel. A singer named Eunice Breach uh, sang a, a handful of songs, one of which was called, Has Anybody Here Seen Barney? to the tune of... Has anybody here seen Kelly? And the whole crowd actually burst into laughter and sang along when the chorus came. And it goes, Has anybody here seen Barney? B.F. Barney O'Neill. Has anybody here seen Barney? Have you heard him speak? Hey! 
My wife and coworkers were singing this song. Okay, listen. What you were telling me, we are leading up to the creation of a comic book villain right now. Like this, he has everything. He is vying for more power. He is in the selection race, and my my guess is that he loses and then loses his mind. Well, that's the end of the podcast. All right, well, Thank you. Everybody. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> so, well, it doesn't. So his shenanigans throughout the state are are pretty wild. He he owns a car, an automobile, mm-hmm. in 1910, which is wow. Crazy. Yeah, that's pretty good. He hires a racer from the East Coast, someone who races cars, to come to Boise and race his car, and so against like, who? Oh, oh, so he had another driver. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I was like, I thought you meant like he was going to drive it and race it. Yeah, it was like Still, a 36 I, mile track. It said, and they were. <laughs> I didn't. I was like not interested enough to follow <laughs> the outcome. But I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Okay. Politics are just so bananas, yep. and they've always been. Yep, they always have been. He was for what you call the local option. So this is the time when prohibition is really in the news, especially mm-hmm, here in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And the local option was that each community could decide if they were going to prohibit alcohol right. use. The only bad thing is he had investments in a bunch of different distilleries. Uh-oh. So he's, he, yeah, yeah, I believe in the local option. You know, that's, this is how people who are against him see it. It's just like, well, he says that, but he's not really going to let that happen because he's got a lot of money that's going right. to go out the window here. So that was a big problem. And then August 20th and 21st of 1910, 3 million acres catch on fire of timber in north idaho Whoa. most of wallace is this is what we call oh, the big burn yep. that happens in yes. 1910 go and, see that amazing oh, exhibit at yeah. the museum yeah amazing award literally award-winning mm-hmm. it's crazy so right after this happens and i'll talk about the big burn in a little second here too but he actually hires like 20 kids to dress in militia uniforms march down the street of these like burned areas waving his flags and shouting his slogans and most of them weren't even old enough to vote and they're all saying we're for we'll vote for barney and all this stuff and it was like Uh, it was not a good pr thing no that's a horrible idea yeah yeah so for those of you who couldn't have guessed it uh he is unsuccessful in the primaries (laughs) against brady and loses to brady and he actually divides the republican party and turns most of the state off to the republican party and so they actually elect democrat james hawley that year oh yeah. goodness so. that's yes ladies and gentlemen we now have a new villain <laughs> new comic book villain <laughs> yeah. so he actually goes to new york he there are all these articles talking about his childhood as an orphan and him mm-hmm. raising himself up in the west and all this stuff he, he goes to this old newsboy la- lodging house mm-hmm. and spends the night and talks to the kids and tries to encourage them to get an education and do all this stuff and uh, while he's there, this is when that big burn happens. Okay. And so oh, it's it's massive. Washington, Idaho, Montana, and British Columbia are burned. About a sixth of Idaho's forests are consumed in this fire. Most of Wallace, which you know he had helped develop, was mm-hmm. destroyed. And I, I read this one article that said that enough timber was burned to fill a freight train 2,400 miles long. Enough wood to build 800,000 wow. houses was burned. Oof. 
It was huge. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if you want, if you're interested in The Big Burn, there's a book by Timothy Egan called mm. The Big Burn, and it's hmm. fascinating. That actually sounds really cool. Yeah. This last summer when I went up to Wallace, we, we listened to it on audiobook on okay. the drive up, which was fascinating. And there are so many good heroes. Like, mm. if you really want a good, like, wow, man, that guy gave his life to save, you know, these people. That's, wow. Oh, it's a great one. Uh, so May 1911, Barney would be destitute. He had lost a massive fortune in his bid to run for governor. He had invested in a Carnegie Trust Company when he went back to New York, which had failed when uh, the Carnegies refused to allow their name in the operation. Oh, dear. He invested in the Spokane Inland Herald newspaper during his governor race, which also failed. And I think he had invested, there were $600,000 sunk into this newspaper. Word was spreading that he was starting to lose money. And so all of these people who had money in these banks started to run with it. They, oh, they went in, no. they cashed out everything. And so he was basically penniless by Whoa. 1911. Yeah. And so what does he do? He decides to reinvent himself. He goes to Canada. He crosses okay. the border. <laughs> and they uh, go to Vancouver, which we talked about. That's mm-hmm, where I went mm-hmm. on my mini moon. Yes. <laughs> and he quickly found a position with a trust company. So he's working there. And not long into his new career, he's arrested when extradition papers arrive to bring Barney home. And the charge, which is over 200 pages long, recounts several crimes within his different banks and companies. And the Canadian government felt that it wasn't enough to hold him, so they release him, and he finds another job in this lumber company. But Idaho detectives had actually found him and located him. They were keeping him under constant surveillance. Uh Finally... Uh, after a bunch of back and forth between the United States government and, and the Canadian government, it's agreed to arrest him and to give him a trial. Remember those laws I told you that he mm-hmm. created? Mm-hmm. Well, Uh-oh. they are precisely what he is charged with. Oh, so, that's... <laughs> making false reports of the condition of the bank, altering the books so that the bank appeared to be in better condition than they were, several charges of embezzlement, accepting several deposits despite knowing the bank was insolvent, and officials making loans to themselves without the approval of the majority of directors. So after all, all these communications, he is actually extradited and placed under arrest in the Shoshone County Jail with an $81,000 bond. Cool. Yeah. Which he could not afford. And right. Yeah, so... During the trial, it's discovered that in 1909, Barney and his head clerk altered the banking books to make the Commerce State Bank of Wallace appear to be worth $100,000 more than it actually was. Whoa. Yeah. He also had a secret campaign fund under the the name William K. Sisler Donation Account, which went to his gubernatorial race that that year in 1910. Which went against the uh, law that established saying bank owners can't lend themselves money without approval. And while interviewing employees of the bank, one noted that Mr. O'Neill always had access to the books of the bank and took a great interest in the books. He went over them frequently and was familiar with the content and also took an active interest in all the affairs of the bank. He would often have the books, and particularly the ledgers and trial balance books, on his desk and would go over these books. And whenever a call was made by the state bank commissioner, which he created, for a report of the condition of the bank, O'Neill would always have the report made out to suit himself and under his immediate supervision. 
He always wanted a report to show up well, and it was always his aim to show a good statement. That is, a good statement compared with the statements of other banks in Shoshone County, and particularly the first national bank of Wallace. He always wanted our statements to show assets within $100,000 to $2,000 of the assets of the First National Bank as shown by his statements. So constantly cooking the books to make them look way better than they actually were. Don't do that. That's oh, illegal. Barney, yeah. Buddy. So, But he was doing this while he was wealthy. Yeah, yeah. So he had everything going for him. But I think he is a very high degree member of the masonic order oh like he is extremely well connected you want to look good and i think his whole life was about being something that he wasn't right and so i think he he had this this societal pressure and this Mm. internal pressure just uh just compounded and then like this crazy need to be the leader right which you know we are seeing that right now in our current political yeah. climate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well he's in the jail he's actually a model prisoner and he regularly received these visitors from all over the state all of his friends these politicians all these people are coming to visit hmm. this guy and one newspaper man actually visited him and interviewed him and said he was super cheerful and he was well-trusted in jail and asked if he was growing tired of imprisonment. He said, yes, but I am treated well and have not the slightest complaint to make. I assume my friends and acquaintances know where I am and I feel a sense of delicacy about asking them to go my bail. It would naturally please me if they did this, but I'm in no position to even personally suggest such a thing. I try to be content. $81,000, would you please bail me out? <laughs> but, but I no wouldn't. Pressure. I wouldn't dare ask you to do that. But yeah. please do it. <laughs> and there were actually a bunch of uh, musicians locked up in the jail with him. So this newspaper and said that people were like listening to them sing songs together every night. <laughs> and at one time... There was this uh, lumberman who was uh, just super irate one morning. He was getting into an argument with this other guy, and he actually picked up this uh, this heavy jar and hucked it. And the guy he was throwing it at ducked, and it went right by Barney's face, just past his temple, and <laughs> shattered into a thousand bits. And he they said he said that uh, if I had stopped that thing with you know with right. his head, uh, I guess court would have just uh, stood a drawing for today at least. Oh. So he's kind of funny. He's, yeah, he I like know, he's kind of sweet. I like him. He's kind of. I mean, he just seems like. I, I guess I imagine him as I'm watching his villain origin story begin. <laughs> I guess I'm just seeing him like really wanting sort of this wealth, but I guess. I, I think what he's realizing now is like he did do something wrong, but he's also willing to sort of like make a joke about it and be yeah. like, aren't I dumb? Like, I guess I'm like seeing him less as a villain. That's the thing is that when I started his story, I was like, oh man, this is going to be a banker. I'm going to mm-hmm. hate this guy. <laughs> I like him. I like him yeah. a lot. Okay. <laughs> and his first trial, he's, he's uh, tried for issuing false statements and it leads to a hung jury. Like mm-hmm. they just cannot get him. And so finally they do a second trial and they charge him with making a false report and they convict him. Okay. And they sentence him two to ten years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So all of this, this crazy, this crazy life, finally he ends up in prison and he arrives on October 13th, 1913. 
He lists his occupation as a banker. He has medium a medium complexion, is 5 feet 10 inches tall, 255 and a half pounds. His hair is dark brown. His eyes are gray. He's married. He has one child. His mother died at the age of 7 and mm-hmm. father at 10. Mm-hmm. He left his home at the age of 11. He had religious instruction in the Catholic Church and studied Christian science currently. Uh, he was oh, a right. moderate drinker. His closest living relative was his wife, Ada O'Neill, in Bidwell, Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. Hmm. And uh, his build was stout. His teeth were in good condition. He had one upper and one lower front tooth that were false. Okay. So when I pull his file, it's this giant, it's like, Oof. what is that, three, four inches yeah, thick? Yeah, yeah. I pull this file out, I start going through it, and it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of signatures from every county wow and so i was like i was going through those and you know like his like three pages of intake information Mm -hmm. his bertillion and then hundreds of pages of people being like let this guy out Mm -hmm. so i turned that back in i'm like well that was nothing and then i see there's a second file that same thickness and I pull that out, and that's where I find that 200-page Canadian extradition paper, which Holy documents cow. every charge against him. So he, he had, when he knew that his banks were going under, he was still accepting deposits and things, which you can't do. Nope. He created that law. You can't do yeah. that. <laughs> and so there were, gee, 100 pages which of so people saying, oh, yeah, I, I gave $50, you know, right. and all this stuff. So, so do, like, you oh. think, do you think he created the law sort of ironically? Or do you think he created the law? Because I'm just not, I'm just having a hard time reconciling this idea that he created the law and then very purposely violated the same things which he himself created, right. which does not make any sense. I, I think that if he had not run for governor, I don't think it would have gotten quite as out of hand as it did. Okay. I, th- I see what you mean. Yeah. But still, I, th- I mean. But yeah, you're right. Why? Why? Like of why? all the laws to break, why are you breaking the ones that like literally the ones you, you created? Wrote, yeah. yeah. You like to the you government. know best of all <laughs> what like what this means and how it's going to get you in trouble. I just I don't understand that. That's I'm so interesting. You. I am with you. So it's mind numbing. If you go through these extradition <laughs> things, I it was about page seventy, and I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> How did he just get making a false report? Like, he, right. he, there was a lot of things that he did. And huh. a lot of things that happened under his watchful eye that he had his right. okay. cashiers do for him. Gotcha. And, and a lot of them got off because they turned state evidence against him, okay. which was also fascinating in yeah. this trial. I think part of it was that he ran for governor and that he made a couple enemies. Mm. So I think that is also an aspect of this mm-hmm. that... You know, I'm going to say the word witch hunt. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. We have a keyword, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But sure enough, there were things that this guy was, that he was doing that were corrupt and it was enough to send him to prison. That's not a witch hunt, Anthony. That's that's called like actually arresting someone for something they did. Yeah, it is. It is. So he's... Well liked, he's well behaved in prison. Of course, everybody loves this guy. Mm-hmm. And I, there's other than like the political things, like mm-hmm. it seems like everywhere he went, he had friends, right? And he just knew he knew people, and he. Well, yeah. I mean, you can make friends through corrupt politics, but I mean, as the saying goes, you know, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Right. But that someone also, I saw someone that made this point that was like, 
but the idea is that you're still catching flies. But basically what I mean by that is like, you're going to make a lot more solid friends who are actually going to help you in an, you know, in a jam Mm -hmm. if you are like genuinely kind and nice to them and are friends with them. Totally. Yeah. Well, this is his prison sentence. So he, he's first given the job as janitor. Mm -hmm. He helped with all the religious services because he was a devout man it was written that he pretty much helped wherever he could. He would do anything. And mm-hmm. people would ask him, he would do anything. He's put in charge of taking care of and training 11-year-old inmate James Whitaker, who was in from Fremont County for murdering his own mother. Yep. Yes. Yep. So <laughs> this little little Jimmy is 11, and he's kind of an orphan. He's in prison in Boise, Idaho, and uh, he's got a 50-year sentence. And he becomes cellmates with Barney O'Neill. Huh. And Barney taught him patience, hard work, uh, how to socialize with others, and how to be wow. responsible and respectful to everybody. Huh. And this Boise teacher was actually visiting and helping with Jimmy's uh, training. And she stated, I believe that Mr. O'Neill is doing more for that boy than any other person could do, outside of the physician and dentist, because he had really terrible teeth. Oh from the fact that he has constant supervision over him and is, as we say, always on the job. I can see the results of his work every week, and we are now working together. And Barney said that when he first met Jimmy, he won over his friendship by actually offering him a present. And he waited for Jimmy to, to respond with a, you know, with a thank you. Mm-hmm. And when Barney realized that Jimmy was never going to say thank you, and he realized that he had never really been taught manners or politeness. He kind of talked to him about it. He's like, you know, when people give you a present, you should you should respond with some thank yous, you know? Yeah. And Jimmy was like, oh. So we quickly learned that any time huh. that Barney did anything, he always said please or thank you to him. And not long after that, this Boise teacher, she actually brought Jimmy a baseball mitt. And she was super pleased to hear Jimmy pretty much freak out saying thank you thank you thank you and then he opened up another box and there was a a baseball in it and she just said he went over the top with his thank yous it was a little too much but sure he's learning so i mean i think you'd rather say thank you too much than (laughs) too little yeah and barney would go out to the baseball field with him and when he was playing when jimmy was playing if he would lose his temper Barney would come over to him and say, you know, nobody can play baseball, loses his temper. And there's no crime in crying in baseball. There's no crime in baseball. And Jimmy, you know, usually would just freak out and they'd have to drag him back to his cell. But with Barney there, he started to realize, yeah, oh, okay. And then he would go back out in the field. So Barney, like, really changed this little boy. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. At one point, Jimmy was in the cell eating these oranges. He had three of them. Mm -hmm. And Barney walked in, and he's like, you know what, Jimmy, I'm hurt. And Jimmy's like, what do you mean? You didn't offer me an orange. Well, I didn't think you'd want one, but you didn't even ask. Mm. And so Barney's like, I'm really hurt. And so Jimmy's like, well, here, have one. He's like, well, now I don't want one. (laughs) And so later, they were out in the prison yard, and... Uh, Barney was just standing there, and Jimmy ran over to him. He's like, here, I want you to have a piece of gum. And so Barney took the piece of gum, and he's like, thank you so much, Jimmy. And he, he ate it. And he's like, here, take a second one. And he's oh. like, no, I'm okay. He's like, no, take a second one. He's like, no, I'm I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. So it's cute. like this kind of cute thing. Yeah. He becomes this mentor, this, like, ah, orphan boy who's seen it and done it all. Mm-hmm. Ah, So the governor sees this. And on Christmas Eve, 1914, Governor Haynes visits the prison and releases Barney O'Neill. Wow. 
So this former orphan, banker, investor, politician, gubernatorial candidate turned trustee prisoner is released. And actually, he spends the night Christmas Eve in the prison because he didn't have a place to go. And then Christmas Day, he goes to Nampa, eats dinner with a good family friend, and then he headed up north. And the governor said this in the newspaper. He said, whatever this man's offense has been, it seems to me that he has suffered his Gethsemane. (laughs) He has traveled the road of Golgotha, and he has paid the uttermost farthing. This is the time of year when we should try to forget the meanness in our natures and do justice. And I have no hesitancy in saying that justice demands the release of this man. And that's pretty much why I chose this story, yeah. because it's Christmas tomorrow. It's Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yay. <laughs> and I hope you all have really nice uh, times with your family, and yet let go of your your meanness. <laughs> and yeah. That's, yeah. listen, that <laughs> deserves a movie. Right? His story's not even over. <sighs> so he goes back up to Canada, okay. where his son is working in the fishing uh-huh. industry. Uh-huh. The family then moves to Seattle, mm-hmm. and Barney becomes the president of this group called the the Pacific Salmon Company. So he runs this like shipping and fishing in Seattle. Like my favorite thing were all these uh, advertisements to send Christmas fish to your family. Salmon, <laughs> <laughs> salmon fresh from the ocean may be sent back east to the home folks for Christmas. These fish are carefully packed in ice, re-iced daily en route, and guaranteed to reach destination in good condition. Oh. It's kind of a cute advertisement. I liked it. But uh, his son joins the military and during World War One. actually served overseas and is injured. And then Barney, he actually dies um, June 18th, 1925 in Los Angeles, California. Hmm. And he has the emblem of an eagle with the number 32 on it, signifying his position as a 32nd degree sublime prince of the royal secret from the Masonic order. So he was like, wow. I mean, this guy, yeah, yeah. And the the saddest part, so his son died February 8th, 1955, and his widow, Ada, actually died that year, June 4th. Oh, sad. A couple, a few months later, both her husband and her son. Yeah. So, whoa. Boy. Sorry. No, it's so, that was really interesting. Because it was, you just were, the tension you built was amazing. Because I was like, oh, he's going to be a comic book villain. We're just seeing the next Joker. Right. Um, wow. Oh. Also, if my family's listening, please don't send me Christmas fish. <laughs> Gross. Just an envelope. Just, just send me sardines. I would throw them in your face. Okay. Um, well, so when I, when I wrote mine, I didn't know we would re- be recording right before Christmas. So yeah. I pulled a little bit of something about women during Christmas, if you don't mind. No, Since I love I, this. Since I unfortunately couldn't participate in the, the Thanksgiving play, yeah. which you guys put on, which I loved. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is just like super quick. Um, I found this article um, quite a while ago. Um, we were looking for something in particular, but I found this article. And so this is from December 25th, 1947. Um, so actually, right after Barbara is released. Nice. Um, and it is a newspaper article from the Idaho Daily Statesman titled Penitentiary Women Inmates to Have Christmas Dinner. 
So I'll just read you the whole thing. It says, this morning will be a busy time for most women in Boise households. Most of them have invited guests to share their Christmas dinners with them. Others have their hands full just looking after their own family dinner. No matter where or who they are, Christmas is generally the same for all Boise women. After the final touches have been put on the turkey and the leisurely dinner hour is over, they have a stack of dishes to face. But the entire day will be lightened with the laughter of happy children, reminiscence of older family members, and the quiet peace which marks the real meaning of Christmas. Even though they must remain within the walls of the women's ward of the Idaho State Penitentiary, four Idaho women will have a Christmas dinner too. They will cook their own turkey and cranberry sauce and have lots of vegetables to make their dinner really something. They have put up a little tree in their ward and have decorated the windows to create a real Christmas atmosphere. This afternoon, they will exchange gifts and will go to the chapel in the grounds of the penitentiary to see the Christmas program which men prisoners have planned. And I believe um, we know all about this Christmas yeah. plan um, where the inmates actually did a live nativity with uh, a male inmate being Mary, if I recall correctly. <laughs> it's a great photo. It's amazing. Let's it's a, post that. Yes, There's it's one of my photo. favorites. <laughs> so they get to go in and see this Christmas play. Santa Claus will come to them too, although in a little different way, and the four women will be faced with the same, quote, full feeling and stack of dirty dishes which women beyond the walls will have. Um, And I was very curious, so I wanted to know who these four women were, um, because again, Barbara had just been released about three months before. Um, So those would have been Ethelyn Mae Peterson, who was in when Barbara came in. Um, She was in for murder in the second degree. Yuletta Mae Cunningham, who was in for grand larceny. Ruth Haynes, who was in for forgery, and then Verna Keller, who was in for murder in the second degree. Tarzan. So she escapes. If you've been to our women's ward, you've seen her. So it's, I mean, it's a small little article, but it's kind of a, a nice little reminder that you know, these inmates are people too, and and they have Christmas traditions that they're going to mm-hmm. miss just as much as any of the rest of us are. And so, wow. so 72 years ago, Right outside the walls that we're in right now, these women were making turkey and cranberry sauce and opening their own presents. Yeah. And so just a nice little Christmas touch for the for our ladies. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, Merry Christmas to everyone yeah, tomorrow. Christmas. Happy Christmas Eve. Stay out of trouble. Don't, <laughs> don't create laws and break them yourselves. Oh don't gosh. steal $12,000. Serious. Just open your presents. Leave cookies out for Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. You know, all the normal Christmas things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, everybody have a nice Christmas and thank you for listening all the yep. way through. Sorry, my story is so long today. But so interesting. <laughs> oh, all right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. See you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.